0: Test. oh, there I am. Turn that down for a second. uh, Can you hear me, Shannon? Yeah. Oh, excellent. It's coming through. Okay, let me turn that down. Shannon has not been on the show before. It's exciting to have a new guest, and we have uh, also talked a couple times here before uh, we did the show, mainly because I wanted to find out what we could talk about. And as it turned out, we had a lot to talk about. It was almost one of those finish sheets, other sentences thing. And I thought, okay, uh, there's no way we're not going to have Shannon on the show. You're in where you're in uh, Brooklyn?
1: Yes. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk. Uh, Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn, New York.
0: I wanted to make it a little earlier one because I didn't want to have you have to have you stay up. I don't know if you're a night owl like me. But I didn't want to have to have you stay up. And also, um, I have to work tonight at 10. And if I, if I do the show from eight to 10, I have to immediately jump over to the other work. Get this going. Make sure I got my archivings going. Good. Excellent. Let me do the, uh, let's do the, uh, intro music. How about I use a different intro music than I usually, usually do because we're not talking about UFOs this time. Well, yeah, maybe we could. We might. But, uh, <laughs> I've got the Lone Ranger version of the, <laughs> the intro. This actually is from an old Lone Ranger radio show. And uh, my sister-in-law found it for me.
2: Hey, who? Oh, what? Get your hands up. There where you are, uh, don't move. Don't reach for them guns. Take it easy, you galoots. Put away the hardware and relax. Hey. Oh, it's Greg.
0: and with that, uh, we're off and running. It is, I don't even know what day it is anymore. May 6th, 2018. <laughs> <laughs> I lose track of days because I have a very strange, uncharacteristic un- uh, schedule. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, I actually do. Yeah, yeah. So I will read this bio from the um, Taggart dot com site. Uh, Shannon Taggart is a photog- photographer based in Brooklyn, New York. Her photographs have been exhibited and featured internationally, including within the publications Time, New York Times Magazine, Discover, and Newsweek. Her work has been recognized by Nikon, Magnum Photos, and the Inge Ing. How do I pronounce it? Inga. Oh, Inga Morath Fou- Foundation. Inga. Yeah, American Photography, the International Photography Awards, and the Alexia Foundation for World Peace. From two thousand fourteen to two thousand sixteen, she was a scholar and artist in residence at the Morbid Anatomy Museum in New York. What was that?
1: Um, that was my fr- my friend uh, Joanna Evanstein. She had a blog, uh, called Morbid Anatomy that was about the the meeting of um, medicine and art and death and culture, like that that whole kind of um tricky tricky stuff that doesn't really fall neatly into any category but mostly death surrounding the topic of death and she got a a donor and her started a museum project and it lasted for about 2 years it was a really exciting space and then unfortunately it closed but it's now reemerging as pop up as a pop up um kind of project and oh. right now they're doing a residency at yeah at Greenwood Cemetery here in Brooklyn. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. Is that one of those huge yeah. ones you drive by when you're driving in, in into or out of the city?
1: No, but I think those the ones you're thinking of are in Queens. But um, oh, okay. Greenwood is a, it's a Victorian um, oh. cemetery that used to be a popular park back in okay. the day. Like people would go and picnic there and spend time. Uh uh-huh. so, Yeah, they have an we have an we have an exhibition. uh I have par, I have some actually some ectoplasm an ectoplasm image up in their exhibition right now that's okay. in one of the chapels there
0: yeah yeah we're going to talk about the ectoplasm thing um what people may not know <laughs> when i i put this uh show up is that shannon is not just somebody when it goes and takes pictures of um spiritualist uh what uh gatherings uh 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 séances things like that but you actually to begin with you were a you are a actual professional earning your living from photographer right
1: Yes, yes. I've been a photographer, I guess, professionally, maybe like 18 years now. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, before I started the project, and I, I've done a lot of uh, commercial work, magazines, um, pretty much a little bit of everything in photography. I worked in newspapers, uh, public relations, yeah, and uh, I've been freelancing uh, full-time since 2005 here in New York. Ugh.
0: That is a tough road to hoe, and uh, my hat's off to anybody that can make a living doing something, anything freelance.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a little crazy now because photography really is becoming, it's almost like a bad word. Like people, now (laughs) photographers are calling themselves visual engineers. You know, everybody wants things that are somewhere between video and photography and you know every all advertising is now on screen so pictures can move so it is it's a very strange time to be a photographer <laughs> professionally
0: yeah i um, bet i mean cause but the, i keep the, at it yeah cuz the medium changed but um the the way of uh the aesthetic for grabbing the medium did not at least i guess it hasn't yet but i guess that's changing right. as as you say um do you, does that mean you have yeah. to shoot video and stuff too or sequences or something like that or
1: I haven't really gone into video. My husband is actually a photographer too, and he does still life, and so he's he's moving more towards video mm. um, lately. I've been I've been shooting a lot of um, uh, public relations and corporate um, work, which is so different from what I do in my art.
0: Yeah, way <laughs> yes, different. Very,
1: sure. very. Yeah, very straightforward. Very friendly uh open lighting like very clean looking work so it's it's definitely i'm definitely wearing two hats
0: yeah do any of those clients know about your this other side of your photography and yet this other side of your your work
1: i try my best to keep it separate i have two (laughs) i have two different websites
3: Uh um
1: but I'm, i'm sure they run up against it i mean if you google me the, the craziest pictures, come. <laughs> I mean, some that aren't even mine, you know, so, um, yeah, so I never really, I've never really asked, you know, I just kind of, for those clients, I just always send my other site, but know
0: yeah. right. You started out in photography, why the spirit photography, what started that interest?
1: So I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which is an hour away from the world's largest spiritualist community. It's like an hour car ride. Um, and that place is called Lilydale. Mm. And when I was a teenager, my cousins would go there for readings. And, uh, one of my cousins went to Lilydale one day and got this really crazy message from our grandfather who told her details about his death that proved to be true and it proved to be the real story of how he actually died and I I remember my whole family being shocked by this and she got the message at at a message service that's what they call they have these outdoor kind of uh you know in the woods these little outdoor arenas where the mediums will give messages and you go anonymously you know you don't sign in you just sit on a bench and you don't even know what me who- what mediums are going to be there that day and at one of these anonymous th- settings um a medium told her the story of how my grandfather died and um it turned to be it turned out to be this true weird kind of family story and um my whole family was really shocked by this and i remember um my father being particularly disturbed. And I mean, he had never even told my mother this story. So
3: hmm.
1: I I just kept, I just was like, how could a stranger know this? You know, I mean, how could this happen? And, and this, this uh idea or this curiosity stayed with me, you know, because this was, I think I was like 16 when this happened. And then I became a professional photographer and I was working in newspapers and, um, doing public relations work. And I, I really, my main interest is really was documentary photography. So I wanted to find a project that I could do on my own that I found very interesting. So I thought maybe I'll go investigate Lilydale. I thought I'd spend one summer like <laughs> figuring everything out and like getting to the bottom of everything. And here I am now 17 years later, <laughs> um finally, <laughs> you know, putting it together as a book.
0: So you you just showed up there and started taking pictures and you started talking to people. How did that relationship develop? What's it like now? You know what's Lilydale like now, and you know how has that changed you as well? There's like ten questions. We'll we'll, we'll unpack them slowly. <laughs> we'll um, start. We'll start out with so, you know, how is that? How, how did you get involved with the people there?
1: So um, Lilydale, they're really protective, and and rightly so. They're very protective about who they let. Do work there because um, they want people who are genuinely interested in in, in not sensationalizing or, or telling a truthful story about them because they do get a lot of they, they get a lot of inquiries and I, I understand why they're so protective. I think they let me in and well, so I met with the board of directors and I proposed a project and at that time I didn't even know what I was going to do. I just said I want to come here and take pictures. Um, and I will share the pictures and they really welcomed me with open arms. And I think it was because they realized that I was genuinely curious and that I was also local. So that may have helped also. Yeah. And so I, the board said yes. And so then I just started going and knocking on doors and basically asking people to teach me about their religion because I knew nothing about spiritualism when I began this project. And um, they very graciously did. And I mean, I'm still amazed by that. And you yes, asked what Lilydale was, was like. And the only way you could describe it, it, it really is like being in a time warp. They mm-hmm. really have kept something. I, I always call it an analog town. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you go there, you really, you really do. They really kept something about the Victorian era, like that, the 1870s when it began. There really is something still there. And it's, it's hard to describe. You really do feel um, transported once you enter those gates. And that's one of my favorite things about it. Um, it's it's a magical place, I think.
0: Well, for people to—it's uh, a spiritualist community. Uh, I think people understand that. But um, uh, what is it now, and um, how did it start? And did it start at the beginning of the spiritualist movement, like in the mid-19th century? Or how did it develop?
1: Um, so it's a, it's a small hamlet, um, on a lake, uh, in upstate New York. And so you, it's kind of like, it's way out of the way. And there's like even like a mile long winding road that separates it from, from the larger road. And so, and then it has these gates and then you enter and it's, I, I don't know how many homes, but I think there's like 400 people who live there full time during the summer and um they ha- you know they have a big auditorium and and um lots of buildings and all the architecture is authentic to the late 1800s early 1900s mm-hmm. i think it was founded it was founded in 1879 as like a spiritualist camp for um i think spiritual cuz buffalo was like a really rich city at the time and and there was a train that that dropped them off close mm. to it yeah but it was kind of a hotbed for of for reformers, and I mean, Susan B. Anthony used to go there and um, give speeches because this is at a time when women weren't allowed to speak publicly. I mean, it was illegal for women to speak, and, and the spiritualists at Dale would let the suffragettes like talk on their stages. And there, it, I think it was like a really, it was kind of a hotbed of uh, intellectual activity um, early on. And it developed into this town, and um, some people live there full time. Um, yeah, and it's it's still there and operating. And um, in the summer, it kind of operates as like a, um, there's lots of classes on mediumship or psychic studies that you can take. So it's it's kind of, um, you know, it's a tourist touristy situation in the summer there.
0: But they have enough people still coming uh, that uh, it kind of sustains them a bit? Or is uh, do you see the thing kind of dying out and getting older and you don't know if it's going to be there for in another 20 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, I think the crowds ebb and flow. Um, I've been there some summers where it's absolutely packed all the time. And now I think it is a little quieter. It really depends on the summer. But, yes, it's it's kind of, people aren't, that aware of spiritualism in America, I find. They, they are more so in England,
3: mm-hmm.
1: even though spiritualism began in, in the United States. So, you know, I don't know what will happen. Um, they have a lot of different stuff on the program that is not spiritualist, you know, like some kind of New Age programs as well. Uh, but the point I always make to people is that spiritualism really does have a distinctive history that I think spiritualism often gets lumped in all things new age. And I mean, it does butt up against all that stuff, but it really is a unique um, movement. And I think a lot of that history is forgotten or lost or not talked about so much.
0: Yeah, it is, um, it is a unique movement. Uh, I, b- because I don't uh, usually go into backgrounds of things, I, I assume most people listening to this show know what spiritualism is, sort of where it came from. What they may not know, which I found interesting, as uh, you told me last time we talked, was that the modern spiritualist movement, especially in this country, they not only don't really know anything about the history of spiritualism, they, they're they kind of averse to it. Is that right?
1: Well, I, I think, yeah. And I think part of the problem is that some of the facts about spiritualism have been written out of a lot of histories. Mm. And I, I think one one of the things you and I talked about was how they're now, art historians are now reassessing the very beginning of modern art based on spiritualist mediums who were were abstract expressionists like 50 years before Kandinsky. Uh, Specifically, there's a woman named Georgiana Houghton that is now, you know, they're realizing, wow, you know, she was doing um, abstract art 50 years before it was supposedly, you know, founded by him.
0: Yeah, in in the 1860s, um, I think
1: yeah yeah in London um, or England
0: in the 1860s yeah
1: in England yeah yeah and then you know even like photography for example there's this huge um history of spiritualism and photography you know uh, being in conversation with each other that was not in any of the history books I studied from you know so I think that's part of the problem and um yeah, and I guess there's always a tension. I, I've talked to musicians, too, where they, where they always say there's always a tension between those who study music and those who play it, <laughs> you know? And I, I think that I, I think that's true with spiritualism, like practitioners and the people who practice it and the people who study it. Like, there's not a huge dialogue.
0: Yeah. Do you think it'd be better if they knew their a little bit more of their history, or is are they fine just blundering it? The thing, I think what you pointed out to me is that they're sort of... Rediscovering the same things that were already there.
1: It depends also too on the on the spirituals because I mean in Lilydale, you know for certain there are people who know the history backwards and forwards, mm-hmm. but then you'll go to some of the newer churches or the newer the people who are kind of uh, newer to it or kind of first learning about it and they have no idea about um, about the history. Yeah. So. But I, I think in general, most most people don't know. I, I find that people are always fascinated when I start talking about, like, no, this, you know, there's all these scientists and Nobel laureates involved. And um, maybe us in the 14, like, paranormal UFO world understand that. But I think generally people are really surprised when they find out that it has this badass intellectual history behind it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were... Um there was a there was not a separation between what we consider what paranormal studying the paranormal and and science back then because they were they were interested in finding out what was going on as a scientific pursuit and I don't think and they did get you know to a certain level but um, sometime after you know the nineteen twenties something like that um, regular you know science as we know it today took over the conversation and shut out. Uh, anything like spiritualism and the paranormal and the photography you do and anything like that, and I think what 's happening right now somewhat with people like you and also scientists is that starting to meet back up again maybe
3: yeah
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah i hope I hope so because I think maybe hopefully the reason is is because people understand that this is there 's this complicated ambiguity going on, and that there's we mm. have to look at these. Things in new ways I mean that that's my hope I mean not everybody sees it that way but I do think a lot of people are are starting to under understand that it's like very complicated stuff yeah.
0: actually I wanted to take it back to something you were just mentioning a couple minutes ago you said that there was a parallel development of uh, spiritualism and photography sort of at the genesis of both spiritualism and photography or at least the popularization of it which you pointed out which I thought was really interesting that both movements had their, not birth, but at least their popularization like half a mile from each other. The Fox Sisters, you said, lived like half a mile from um, the Kodak, the guy that started the Kodak company.
1: The Where the first public seances were held uh, is actually down, like a half mile down the same street from where Kodak headquarters um, was established. <laughs> and I just found that fact weird and fascinating, that they were both Introduced to the public masses on the same street, you know yeah. literally uh-huh. and um and there's all these just all of these reflexive things going on between spiritualism and photography, and that's really the reason why my project be expanded into this like you know seventeen year thing that I had to wrap my brain around it, it's because of the this dialogue between the two where they You know, spiritualism uses photography to learn about itself and vice versa, you know, and they both kind of discovered through that dialogue that each has a very complicated relationship with truth.
0: (laughs) Can you expand on that? Because that's one of the fascinating things that uh, I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, what is that interaction? What What does photography and spiritualism tell each other? and how have they affected each other as um, they've moved forward in, you know, in, in, in time.
1: When, when photography, photography came about, like, I think it's 1838 and then 1837, spiritualism, 1848. uh, It was almost immediate um, where they were, you know, we tried to, they tried to use photography to investigate or prove spiritualism. And this is, And the reason is, is because at that time, they were just discovering germ theory, um, you know, the uh, radiation, x-rays, all of this uh, powerful forces that were, or, you know, this, this, um, these developments that or these forces that were operating beyond the human perception were being realized. Right. So it was kind of a no brainer, like, okay, well, if, if that's going on, and we can show that through imagery, imagery, maybe we could show the, the the spirit world. And also this, the whole idea of disembodied communication, you know, with the telegraph and recording voices, and um, radio waves, you know, so that, in addition, they, that I think it was it was kind of a possible conclusion like, Oh, well maybe we can have disembodied contact with the dead as well.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And so it was, it was actually kind of, I I mean, I totally understand why they thought it was going to be an easy link, you know, just photograph um, mediums and then try to photograph the spirits and maybe we can do it. And that whole endeavor was fraught with, (sighs) scandal and, um, you know, fraud or trickery or, um, uh, interpretive conclusions. Um, it was very, it's a very loaded moment in, in photography. And I think that's why it was written out of so many of the history books. Cause it's just, it's, when you see the images, I always say that, um, the spiritualist photo history is, some of the most absurd <laughs> and, uh, just crazy, bizarre, I mean, ha- complete high strangeness. And some of the, some of the most uniquely unsettling images, I think, in the history of photography. And, um, we also learned how photography was not the, the clear, objective tool that people had hoped. You know, there's a lot of complications between the way it represents reality. And the truth is, is that one of the primary things about understanding photographs is that the interpretation of them is primary. It's something that you can't remove, or can't can't cleanse that that is very ambiguous. There it offers multiple interpretations. Yeah. So, it's a big yeah, conundrum.
0: <laughs> As you're saying that, I'm just thinking, you know, somebody will take a picture of someone and they'll say they look really happy. They may have looked like they were smiling for a split second, but they may be the most dep- depressed person you ever saw, and vice versa.
1: Right. And th- there's that, and then there's also all of the, you know, mechanical or chemical artifice, like, you know, with with light leaks or blur or motion or, t- you know, time, double exposures, um, you know, non-image forming light getting onto a, like a, a picture plane, these things, um when you see them, they, let's, you know, let's say fog or smoke or, you know, like light leaks can look like a waft of a ghost, you know? I mean, this is like, this is kind of the visuals that come out of the, Mistakes in photography kind of just lend themselves to thinking about invisible forces, um, and that you know, and and pl- not understanding too how how trick how tricky photography could be. You, you know, some people took it at face value, I think, at first. You know, and now we understand um, that it's it's a trickster medium. You know,
0: <laughs>
1: it it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's why it's wide open for. I've never heard about that. But that it put that way, which is great. Photography is a trickster medium, but on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we have to dismiss everything that comes out of it. And I was going to save your comment for later, but um, and I put this in the announcement. Um, your comment to me that I can't get people to understand that I take this seriously, but not literally. I think that says so much about not only what you do, but anything where people are interested in something that's the at the edge of uh, respectability or science or understanding or whatever you want to call it.
1: Yeah, and um, especially some of the spirit photo, photos that look so obviously um, faked. I take, you know, people, will say, spiritualists will say to me sometimes, well, those ones are real or this one is false, so why would you want to even... Look at or think about these the, the fake ones. You need to find the real ones, and I don't look at it that way at all. And um, one of the most amazing things I think is that we forget, you know, the power of the symbol, the power of the image. Like it, it takes me back to that and how spiritualism. They created original an original iconography through the medium of photography, and this is the first religion to do that. I mean, previously it was always painting. Mm. Yeah. So those spirit photographs are symbolically heavy at the very least you you know i mean they're they're really powerful myth-making visuals for the tenets of spiritualism or the belief of spiritualism at the very least Mm -hmm. um but they're not in spiritualism they're i don't they're not often appreciated as that in the art world they are i think more so as just like, you know, weird visuals or or powerful visuals.
0: There may be people listening that on one hand that are saying, uh, you know, it's beautiful art, some of these pictures, Mm -hmm. and other people saying, well, where is the proof? Where is the proof? And that you're saying that it has nothing to do with either of those things. Those are um, in a way separate, but just as important. Am Am I understanding you correctly?
1: Yeah, and then with my own work, I got to a place where I really tried to blur this line between art and evidence (laughs) and really play with, you know, really play with this, you know, what is actually happening here. And I, the more I went with that, and the more I experimented with that, the more crazy synchronicities I was getting. And for me, that's where it's at. And like, you know, so I started doing these pictures that are just, you know, using techniques that are considered completely unprofessional and just, you know, like crazy long exposures or allowing, you know, um, mistakes or or, um, motion or flare to get in the way of the picture or, you know, just automating the process by doing, you know, 10 second exposures just to see what would happen. And a lot of times that automation would just hand me a visual for this invisible experience. And that is what started to, like, really get interesting for me and really blow my mind to kind of, like, see if I could really, really play with this spiritualist reality or, like, find a visual for it just through the process of photographing it. Yeah. If I um, was really willing to be very experimental and... um, I did I did I think I got some really interesting results at least for me they were, some of them were pretty shocking
0: yeah, you also said, and I thought this was really interesting and continuing this theme that um there are a few different audiences for what you do some of them are i think you broke them in down into academics um photography people and or maybe uh, photography slash art people, and people who are interested in the paranormal is that is that what is uh, are those the three groups generally?
1: Yeah, yeah, and, um, or maybe like people who are interested in, in the history of spiritualism, but they don't, they're not, they find the history fascinating, but it's not anything that they want to engage or, you know, it's more like, um, history of psychology sociology uh, history of medicine th- that that crowd seemed to be interested in spiritualism but not really interested in the practice of it or necessarily experiencing that right and then you know I started out at, I started out as a photo geek and so and I really feel like this project is almost my love letter to the medium of photography and <laughs> all of its conjuring powers and yeah. and it's it's amazing like the like the spookiness of photography itself just photography itself, I I hope that's clear in the project. It's one of my main um, things that I think about a lot. And then, yeah, and then I've kind of newly found the paranormal crowd. That was a later thing. And um, I really do love talking to those type of audiences, especially for tan audiences, because I feel like they're really willing to grapple with some of this, some of this real and ambiguous, like like all of this inherent ambiguity, I think they're willing to grapple with it in a way that other audiences aren't. I hope it speaks to all of those people. That's what I'm really aiming for.
0: Yeah. And you also told me when you present to these different audiences, you have to be aware of what they're interested in or you kind of lose, <laughs> you lose their uh, interest if you don't address yeah. their concerns. Which is, it's really weird because you have your feet firmly planted in all these different areas. But if you start talking about art to the academics, they're going to go, well, who cares? I mean, it's just, we're just looking at the history of this thing. And if you start talking about what is the nature of photography to a paranormal person, they're going to invariably say, well, where's the proof? What, you know, what proof are you getting? What, what absolute proof are you getting of these things that you can, you know, bring to a skeptical person and show that this is, this is what's going on. And it, it just seems like you have to kind of tiptoe between these different audiences, but they all are a hundred percent interested in you, but just not certain areas of your interest in what you found out.
1: Yeah, and uh, by having to by thinking about all of these audiences, it's made me it's made my project more interesting because it's really made me look at it through different lenses, and um, it's really helped me to expand it. I think
3: mm-hmm. it,
1: it really gave it extra extra. Um, extra depth by thinking about them all. And then there's a the spiritualist audience, which, you know, oh,
3: yeah.
1: some spiritualists aren't interested in my project because I've photographed a medium that they think is fake, you know? And mm. then, but some like love it and love learning um, about, you know, what people are doing in other countries or in other seance rooms. And, you know, I mean, that's like a whole, it's a whole, there's a lot of politics within spiritualism, especially yeah, surrounding. Just like the physical mediumship yeah
0: yeah so that's interesting too so i guess you started out just photographing lily dale and the people there and all that but then eventually i guess you started being invited to um to sessions with mediums seances um etc how did that start and how did that develop into to what it is now and what like kind of drew you forward with that
1: well, uh, so I started being invited. Gradually, I would get allowed to photograph, you know, re- private readings or seances. And, um, you know, when I was in Lillydale, when I first started, I was just photographing everything that I saw, you know, mm-hmm. very, you know, with new eyes. And. Then, you know, getting into these seance situations with all this, like, invisible activity and these invisible exchanges between, you know, a medium and a a presence you can't see, I became, like, very frustrated. And (laughs) because the pictures I was making was not true to the psychological reality
3: Mm.
1: that I was witnessing. Mm. And I was like, I don't know if this is something you can even photograph. Like, I don't, I really don't know if spiritualism is something that... I can make a photographic project about. Huh. And so I actually, I stopped working on it for like four years. And so I, I shot like from 2001 to like 2005, 2006, maybe early 2007, but I I just got so frustrated. I just dropped it for four years.
3: Hmm.
1: And, but the whole time I could not st- stop thinking about spiritualism and so that's when I started reading, like, about the history of parapsychology and and trying to get up to speed on what was going on in the world of the paranormal. And it was actually, there were a couple books that really changed the way I looked at everything. And one of them was George Hansen's The Trickster and the Paranormal. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it was kind of like, just opened my eyes to all the, all the good stuff about the ambiguity. And so it was that. And then I had stumbled upon some accidental pictures in the early part of the project in the the first five years. And I started to relook at some of those and how the, I had these synchronicities where the invisible experience was handed to me through the, through the photographic process, Mm -hmm. you know, like photographing I was photographing this one woman in a museum and she got this huge purple orb near her shoulder and I brought her the picture back and she was like, Oh yeah, that's my husband, Bob. And she went around the town saying I had photographed Bob in the museum. And at that time I was not thinking about photography in that way at all, but it just kept happening to me that I would have these accidents that then kind of translated into a, into a metaphor you know it happened a bunch, and then i i had i was kind of i just became very interested in in like oh yeah, there's something to that and so then, when I started the project back up in two thousand and eleven, I just really decided to go with that as much as possible and be ex- as experimental as possible mm. but another thing that happened is that this physical mediumship, the victorian era style fan kind of came back. Mm. Believe it or not, like it. it, And early on, it was like I could not find anybody who was doing those those kind of practices. And um, but then. You know, it's called the new age of physical mediumship, and it it sort of just started really growing. And so then there were more people around to photograph in that way. And and um, and so then I started traveling all over documenting um, the people who were doing the Victorian-style seances
3: mm-hmm.
1: and people who are using technology. Um, yeah, a lot of this is because of the Skull Experiment. Do you know what the Skull Experiment is? I um, should I know, know,
0: but please describe it for me and the listener. I, I know it's something like the um, Philip Experiment, but this was done in England um, in the 60s, I think.
1: Yeah, it was it was in England and it was from 1993 to 1998. Oh, it And was it quite got later. a lot of okay. press. Yeah, it was like um, these spiritualists who decided to. Um, Robin Foy uh, was one of the main um, mediums involved, and he decided they decided that it was like four of them at sitting in a circle, and they would have visitors to the circle. But they decided to use technology and try to bring back. Um, they wanted to create physical evidence. And Robin Foy even started this thing called the Noah's Ark Society, which was like trying to bring back the the Victorian style ectoplasm seance. And it it caused a lot of, I mean, I think it was on the London Sunday Times cover of the the newspaper magazine. Um, It it caused like the SPR was involved. Everybody was looking at, they were creating all this video and photographic uh, um, evidence and Uh, publishing it and so it got people really excited about these type of seances or using technology or going back to the seance room in a traditional way Mm -hmm. and so it just kind of snow it kind of snowballed and inspired this new this kind of rebirth of those practices and um, by 2011 there were a lot of people interested in physical mediumship I found
0: and that's and that's growing right or you think it is
1: yeah, yeah. I think it it seems to be growing to me. It, it and in spiritualism, you know, there's two there's two train like ways of looking at it. Some believe that that's a way backwards. That the way forward is, you know, to clairvoyant mediumship, using your consciousness, raising your consciousness um, very much like the type of mediumship you see in the TV shows, like the Long Island medium, where you're like in a bright room with white candles and there's celebrity clients and it's all like clean and friendly and really, um, really welcoming and inviting. And then there's others who, in, within spiritualism, say, no, physical mediumship has been around since the beginning. It's a huge part of this. Uh, belief system or this practice and we need to keep it going we need to go back to it we need to we need to do the dark room seances we need to bring back ectoplasm and yeah it's pretty it's pretty much very divided within spiritualism about which way is the way forward
0: and is it does that break down along age lines or is it just I guess what people's um, their, their psychological makeup is I would suppose I, I think I'd go with yeah, I think I'd yeah. go with the old school just because that's my personality. I want to go in a dark room and and see this going on, and I want that thing to happen. I want to call up an earlier time and all that and see what happens. That would be what would interest me. But then you'd go to a UFO conference and somebody'd say, "Oh no, no, that's going to invite bad stuff in your life." Much better to do things just out in the open and with uh, full communication and everything visible and all that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it just totally depends on the person. hmm Yeah.
0: What's your preference? I guess the dark one because it, it's much better for photography.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what I was interested in because it was giving a visual, you know, and and when you get into these physical mediumship seances, it's really, it's a religious ritual for sure, but it's also this, it's like visionary performance art. It really, I mean, there are these wild performances using light and music and, Um, props and they have this unique visual culture and and there was it was kind of it was so much more symbolic than just photographing a medium giving a message you know because how do you how do you really show that somebody doing clairvoyant mediumship it's really hard to make a picture about that yeah and so this this kind of lent itself to making a visual and kind of talking about it with with symbols and images
0: Yeah. Well, Also, I saw some of the photographs. Some of them were of those um, spiritualist trumpet things, but they had drawings of celebrities on them, I guess, depending on who they wanted to call up.
1: Yeah, that's the whole celebrity thing is really fascinating to me. And it's something I want to do. I want to it's a part of the project I want to expand, you know, maybe it would be even be like another project on top of it. And I, I have done. I have I have done a talk I have a a project about Michael Jackson that I've been working on which has been inspired by the mediums who say that they are bringing Michael Jackson into their séance room. Mm-hmm. It's performers like Louis Armstrong, Freddie Mercury, Michael Jackson. Like mm-hmm. many of these circles are not just bringing through dead relatives, but also these celebrities are making appearances and you know coming in to dance with people in the seance room or give messages from the other side. And um, I found that like just totally fascinating the the whole celebrity, celebrities coming into the seance room thing.
0: It seems to me that no matter what the manifestation of what's going on, whether there's real ectoplasm, which we'll get into coming out of mediums or that you take a picture and a woman says, that's my husband and it just seems to you like it was a, a trick of the light or some, some problem with the, with your equipment or an adjustment or something like that, that the dichotomy between those two doesn't really interest you so much as the meaning it holds for the people that witness it and the people that see your photographs. Is that sort of accurate?
1: Yeah. And it's also being surprised by some of these things that happen. Like, you know, like when I make a picture and it actually shocks me, (laughs) Because it it kind of resonates with this thing I couldn't see, you know. It, it kind of like lends itself to tell that story, even though it, you know it wasn't there with my when I saw it with my eyes. That kind of shock, uh, or that kind of, I mean, I just found it really thrilling and interesting and um, something to explore.
0: Yeah, because it's a much deeper way of looking at it that, that a. A synchronicity or um, just a, why would that appear when you need it to appear? That's a strange thing. It's not uh, explainable in any way except as, I don't know, I mean, as as an artistic, because uh, artists for a long time have said the same thing. It's like, I needed to do something and that thing appeared for me or I did something different. Laurie Anderson, a long time ago, she said that, um, and a bunch, bunch of other artists have said this, but let your tools um, do your artwork for you. And I always found that right. fascinating.
1: Yeah, so I started to like trust with the process, or go to the photographic process and see what it had to offer. And you know, I've had this talk with some spiritualists. I've had a talk with. Not, I'm not trying to put everybody in a into one camp, but some spiritualists do believe that you're never going to really photograph a spirit, like actually. Um, meaning, like the story is usually, and I've heard this story. Anecdotally, but also with people I know, is when something really does happen that you see with your eyes, the camera mm-hmm. freezes up. Yeah, I mean, this story is over and over and over and over again. And oh, that's a
0: that's a UFO and ghost pro- story too. I mean, it, that stuff doesn't seem to work when the real thing happens.
1: "Quote unquote." Right. So, I guess what I'm approaching is like, fine, if you can't photograph it that way, it seems to be you can you can make a photograph that resonates with it. Like mm-hmm. that kind of somehow, um, speaks about it in a different way or, yeah, you know, like
0: I can't take a picture of,
1: tangential.
0: What, yeah, I can't take a picture of what you're seeing, but I can't, this is a, I'm just making up a quote, but I can sometimes produce a picture of your memory and impression of what happened to you. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah and this ambiguity that surrounds stuff like this is just yeah that's what i became more interested in not like trying to ghost hunt you know and and like actually photograph a ghost i was trying to make pictures that really resonated um with the interior experience that was happening that i couldn't see with my eyes you Mm -hmm. know like because it was interior it was hidden from me it was somebody else's you know that's such a huge part of the paranormal is the subjective and objective like overlap you know and that's that's why it's so deeply personal yeah um but also i think a lot about consciousness just in terms of photography itself because i've always seen photography as like a form of telepathy or a form of like thought projection or you know like how is it, you know, you're using the same camera that a million people are, but how are photo- photographers distinctive?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's something about their their attention placed onto the material world through this, you know. And it could be the same object that people are looking at and the same camera someone else is using, but somehow it speaks differently. So yeah. this whole idea... Yeah,
0: and not in a way that it's like if I went to the same place and took the same picture from the same angle with the same lighting, it would you could not repro- If somebody's a good photographer, you could not reproduce that. You just can't, right? Even with the same damn right. camera and all that, it just would it wouldn't work. Well, it might, but it would not be the exact same thing. And anybody that knew the person's work would know that it wasn't their their image.
1: Right. And so I've always kind of thought of photography as like a sort of sacred action or, Hmm. you know, something that like a, like some sort of very bizarre way of truth telling or some, some, it's telepathic to me, but it's also, you're using light and time
3: Hmm. too.
1: So it's, (laughs) there's just, there's just something that's so magical about just the basics of photography itself. And then when you apply it, you know, onto this topic, it's almost, yeah, it gets very reflexive. It's um, it's something I just, I try to, I don't know, I think about it a lot.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I think that <laughs> photography
1: is a very trippy thing, you know, and also you can time travel with photography, you know, you can, you freeze people's reflection, which, you know, the reflection has always been seen as like a magical thing. Right. And, you know, you trap a disembodied presence, you know, there's something so um, just so strange about just a photograph itself. Just, I mean, photographs themselves are, are, I I think are paranormal (laughs) themselves. If you really think about it.
0: Yeah. You have some pictures you took of supposedly what's ectoplasm. Maybe people don't know what that is. Could you maybe describe what that is, and um, at first, and then kind of your experience of it? Because I read in your your essay that there were aspects of it that I never knew about, like sp- specifically smells. That's a really strange thing. You see, oh, yeah. you see pictures. And you don't realize, you know, as you said, that's not the, that, that's just a little moment in time of what's going on. That's not the experience of it. So, you know, maybe you could give us a kind of a short history of what ectoplasm is, uh, and, um, you know, how it's been looked at through history and with photography too, because they, they started taking pictures of it very early on.
1: Right. So ectoplasm, uh, I always, Start I think the first time I ever heard of ectoplasm was through Ghostbusters, the, you know, the, the
0: yeah.
3: movie yeah.
1: Ghostbusters.
3: Uh-huh.
1: And, you know, that was created by Dan Aykroyd, who actually is a fourth generation spiritualist. Right. So he's pulling the term from, you know, spiritualist practice. But ectoplasm is, it's a paradox. It's a physical substance that's both spiritual and material at once. It's something that merges basically the realm of life and death through this this physical stream and it's kind of it's seen in the the images as like this goo or cheesecloth looking or you know like material um but it, it was named by a nobel laureate named charles roche who was actually won the nobel prize in medicine mm. and he had seen it in seances and So he named it ectoplasm, which means like outside formed. And um, in the early descriptions of it, it's like something that it kind of emerges from the medium's body and then seems to take on an agency of its own and literally comes to life Mm -hmm. and then morphs into forms that seem to act intelligently and um, then gets sucked back into the medium's body. And the, the folklore surrounding ectoplasm is that it's light sensitive. It smells like, um, you know, there's many descriptions, but like, you know, other bodily fluids, Mm -hmm. you know, some, some people say it smells like semen or urine or, um, musty, like, like, like a a rotting smell. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it, supposedly you know sticky and all of this it's it's this kind of fascinating weird almost like like a spiritual birth substance you know and and the even the mediums when they were like producing it they would call it uh, um you know there would there would be analogies between this ectoplasmic birth that was happening like they were birthing um this the, the in the disincarnate um, spirits through their bodies with this ectoplasm, so it's a really fascinating, um, very strange substance.
0: Not knowing too much about it, you just think, oh, it's this goo that comes out of people that are are um, are mediums and are involved in some sort of uh, in a, in a ritual uh, or in a seance or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. But the way you describe it, just listening to you right now, sounds to me like something that is. Neither physical nor not physical, even though it has properties of both.
1: Right. Uh, Yes. And so it's sacred. Yeah. It is the ultimate, for spiritualists, it's the ultimate, you know, it's the ultimate thing that could happen, is that ectoplasm would come and, like, take on the form of a dead relative and, like, be fully materialized. That's, like, the ultimate um, that you can do in spiritualism. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's and it's a very controversial topic.
0: Yes, very <laughs> cool. I mean I I'm I'm saying this now and I'm thinking of people listening going, Oh come on, this mm-hmm. is just fake stuff that spiritualists do and, and try to fool people and it never really happens. But the thing is that the descriptions I've read and now your description, and also um in the essay you sent me, um you, you said that uh you know early attempts to photograph it and well now too that it does not convey the experience of sitting there and seeing it it's this flash of a two-dimensional thing uh that comes out on the, fo- on, the on the photograph but when you're sitting there it's doesn't really convey the the feeling and the and the experience and the, the visual of it actually happening is that true
1: yeah but, i mean when you go back and read like what charles O'Shea said about ectoplasm or um you know some of the early pioneers of the SPR, like how they describe it. It's like this fascinating thing that is so absorbing, and it's also erotic. It's oozing out of these. You know, they would these women would be naked or like literally sewn into body bags, and still ooze this stuff out into the into the séance room that would seem to be animated. But then the the images that are made out of it are, are made of it seem to completely report another reality it, it completely these images seem to completely invert this mystery and um, I think that's really fascinating too to think about it that way um, that this relationship between seeing and knowing is confused by trying to photograph it you know by yeah by the documents of it
0: yeah that's exactly what you said in the essay I, I just thought it was fascinating that the, the photographs, confuse the relationship between seeing and knowing and that that the the knowing would be you could sit there and watch a film of it and say that's fascinating but if you're sitting there it's a completely different it's it's a difference between having somebody describe a weird uh, um, experience to you and actually having it happen to you because the people that have had these things happen to them talk about it in a completely different way than people that haven't had this thing actually happen to them. And the language is different, and the mindset is different. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that that dichotomy between seeing and knowing is fascinating to me. It has been for a long time. And I've never really seen any of this stuff. I've walked through a cold spot. Um, I've seen like some lights blinking in response to somebody that I knew wasn't tricking me, things like that. But that's different than having sitting in a room and having some some substance float out into the room and assume the form of a person and all that. I don't know how you'd fake that. I guess you could, but yeah, if I'm not sitting there, I I don't have that. I don't have that. That's what's the word. I don't have that subconscious, um, language, (laughs) if you want to call it that, 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 um, uh, experience experiential language or whatever you want to call it, that will push me into that level. Um, And there's no way to convey that unless you're just sitting there experiencing it. You can look at 3,000 pictures, but it's not going to make any difference between you and somebody that was sitting there. You won't really have much to talk about.
1: Obviously, a lot of, there's a lot of accounts of like finding mediums faking ectoplasm or or them being these magic tricks, you know, there's like a lot of... Right, you know, the, or the the concept of mixed mediumship, where like some of it was real and some of it was fake. But I, I'm actually kind of curious about the hypnotic effects of it. Like, like let's say let's say some of it's a trick, but what? Okay, the if it's a magic trick, if it's it's an illusion, in a dark room in front of a relaxed mind, does something else happen? Does something else take over? I mean, the it, you you really get to kind of too, to start to question about the whole experience of magic or a magic trick or performance itself when it crosses the line between or blurs that line between true and false. There's that stuff, too, you know, Mm -hmm. over the fact that if it's if if it's some people had real ectoplasm and some people had different or like fake ectoplasm, I I think the whole thing is confusing, (laughs) like thinking about all of these different ways it could work. You know? this,
0: yeah, this is a really tough one because you're stuck in this, is it real or is it not? Is it fake, is it not? Can it be measured or can it not? And if it can or it can't, what camp does that throw you in and what is that third way? And the third way might be art. And there, it, people yeah. have to, you, you, it takes a really weird mindset to uh, accept that an artistic expression or something that works on your subconscious is as valuable as having a having something you know in a jar that you could measure in weigh. if you see what i'm saying
1: i do think that there is there's that artists have a lot to say about this stuff and there is it seems to be very little conversation between scientists who study or, or try to study or are interested in parapsychology and the artists Mm-hmm. Who, who use it as as fuel or a topic. I think there could be a really interesting conversation there, and there should be one, but there just doesn't seem to be. Um,
0: Not a public one, but anyway. I, do think,
1: I think, yeah, and I, I do think the artists have a a lot of understanding to share yeah. um, about all these topics. I, I completely agree. Yeah,
0: I don't know where that conversation should start, but I think it starts almost internally with people who are artistically inclined or, you know, but also have scientific training. And the funny thing is they're either going to, it's funny, they're they are good at both and they either turn, this came up with, you know, talking with Dean Radin a few weeks ago when I had him on, he mm-hmm. was going to be a uh, concert violinist and he was good at it, but he was also good at physics and, and the sciences. So he decided to go in the sciences based on, you know, his, his uh, relatives saying you can't make any money being a violinist. So, But the thing is, he still has, he still has the mind of an artist. And that, I think that really helps with trying to unhook from this subject object, uh, uh, is it real, is it not real thing and say, let's not really care whether it's real or not real. Let's just examine what we think about it, how we think about it, how it affects people and what we can extrapolate from that. And it may be something that's completely individual, which doesn't work with the scientific method either. It has to work for everybody if it's a scientific method. But a lot of this paranormal stuff works differently ever so slightly for everybody that encounters it, I think.
1: Yeah. No, definitely. And it's it's basically not... I found that it's just in general, a lot of people don't want to deal with ambiguity or chaos. Like, yeah. they really, really want it to be able to, to put it in a certain box and lock it in there and Observe it from afar, like keep it safe or, or, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. And it's, I think it's, the, I think there's not a lot of people who are willing to grapple with the ambiguity. I, that's what I find. I mean, I or find so many, it. so many times it's like, yeah, like why are you doing this? If it's not proof and it's not, you know, I just can't understand why you want to do this or, um, people who are looking at these, I mean, well, I'm sure you know because of the UFO thing. It's like, you know, the whole people who insist that it's nuts and bolts and that there's no other aspect to it. Um, I don't, I don't think that's a way into understanding.
0: No, not especially with things like this. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: They're just—it's just too tricky. It's too—it's there's just too. I mean, people wouldn't be pondering it for how many thousands of years if it wasn't something completely tricky.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry there was somebody making a noise outside. I was like, what was that? Um, <laughs> I think that looking at things like this, the paranormal and UFO stuff and all that like this is I think that might be the way forward for a lot of people. Not not the only way, but it's um the right brain being involved in in you know, the creative mind being involved in looking at these mysteries, I think is has been shunned because of the way the, uh, the way our society works and the, the scientific method and the way it's practiced. There's nothing wrong with the scientific method. But uh, back to Raiden again, he said, um, looking at some of this stuff, he said that the things he was studying was like trying to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. You know, that we've right. got these, these big, um, bulky tools trying to c- capture something that's basically fog according to that tool. And, you know, how do you capture fog? I don't think you can, but you, there are other ways of experiencing fog and looking at it and figuring out what it is without trying to, you know, without trying to put it in a bottle and measure it or whatever. Um, and I think those, that's the realm of the, the, the creative mind, uh, which is, uh, uh, you, you've, you've really inspired me just from, you know, when we were talking to, to look at this in a little different way, um, and pull it away from the literal and more into the, Away, just away from the literal and see what happens when you're not literal anymore. Thanks.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it took me a long time to embrace that too. So I get it. I think I understand why maybe people don't want to go there. I, I do. But yeah, for me, once totally. you open your eyes to it, there's no turning back.
0: Yeah. And um, it doesn't mean you're you're throwing away science. It doesn't mean you're throwing away literalism. It just means I've got a tool belt and half of it's missing. So I'd like to <laughs> like to put some more tools in that tool belt instead of just the ones that I, you know, I keep banging at the same problem with the same tools and think it's gonna make a difference.
1: <laughs> yeah. Definitely.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh another thing that you talk about on your site and I think in the essay that you sent me is uh orbs, orb photography. Now let me tell you what happened with, uh, what my background is a little bit for this and we can discuss it. There was an article, maybe you saw it, in the Scientific Exploration Journal, a Society for Scientific Exploration Journal. Um, I think two or three optical physicists, um, took three or different, four different cameras and took pictures in this room and figured out that for most of the time and the, and the cheaper the camera was with less, uh, lens elements, less uh, less effective coatings on the lenses, the more orbs they got. And they said, well, that's basically due to light aberrations and um, seeing a, a light source reflected in the other side of the lens and sometimes dust and sometimes water and all that. The good thing about the article is they said that this doesn't work for everything. It just seems to be, you know, in the majority of cases, this is what's going on. And then you have that picture that was taken in, where was it, uh, Sicily?
1: Uh, Sardinia. Sardinia, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And that thing's covered with what people would call orbs. So, what is your experience of photographing this kind of thing and what do you think's going on there if it's not dust or water particles or lens flares?
1: Well, I I think there's no doubt that there's dust and water and the, and you know the the crummy lens with very close to a flash will give you more orbs. And but what when I started working with or, or studying or learning about the orb people who are people who are doing orb photography that's that is kind of not their concern their their point is to interact with the orbs so how they're happening it doesn't matter it's can they inte- intelligently um, kind of communicate with these orbs can they put them into certain patterns can they make them appear in in a certain place in the frame mm. can they zoom in and 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 see a mandala shape or a face that they were looking for. That's the point of the orbs. I see. And so it's again, it's like a consciousness thing. It's like, okay, these orbs are a thing that can happen with cameras, but we're going to try to interact with them and see if we can have an experience with them, or you
0: yeah, know, and have not, something embody them yeah, and not care what the what, not care what the source of them is, even if it is dust. Right, or whatever. and I
1: mean. <laughs> yeah yeah, and I'm like, okay, so this is my orb story, and i I think they have gotten orbs in clean rooms before there was some physicist who did that, but yeah, a lot of it you, but if you if you photograph water or um, dust, it does look a certain way, and sometimes these orbs really look a different way, but the, uh so I have a professional camera with a very large sensor with a flash that is far from the lens. Mm-hmm. And so I very, very rarely get orbs, you know, and I'm shooting, you know, professionally all the time with a flash and a camera. And in those pictures, I, there is, I, I don't, I can't even remember a time professionally I've got an orb ever. Yeah. Um. So these, I was in Sardinia for a conference and these orb photographers said okay well we go into the mountains and we photograph orbs and i said well i'll go with you but i'm not going to get any orbs but i'll try i'll bring my camera but i'm just telling you in advance i'm not going to get any orbs and (laughs) they said oh no when when we say our prayers you will get orbs and so i went up with them they said their prayers i took a picture and the image amazes me because it is covered in orbs as far as you can zoom in on every inch of the photograph it's orb upon orb upon orb upon orb and it wasn't raining and they weren't insects and there wasn't like a sudden dust thing so I really don't know how it happened it's a it's for me it's like this cool synchronicity like what happened there
0: you know it just show up in the one image from the sequence that you took
1: um no I did get there was like a couple shots with orbs but there was one in particular right after they said the prayers where it was just like just distinctively weird and different and Mm -hmm. just covered in orbs yeah um i did get some like uh up in the mountains i did i did get um you know more orbs than i've ever gotten ever before or since or you know um Hmm. and i'm not i'm not like, saying they're not dust or things in the air. But, I mean, the the one in particular where it's just every inch, I don't know what happened because nothing, I didn't see any change with my eyes, really. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I love it. I love it being a mysterious, like, experience. I'm right. all for that.
0: <laughs> you did say that uh, there's a large contingent. We talked about this, too. There's a large contingent of people that are doing orb photography. And you said... A lot of them tend to be grieving parents or mothers.
1: I think the whole grieving, the theme of the grieving mother is throughout the entire history of spiritualism, Mm -hmm. because when it began, you know, you have to remember like the infant death rate was huge. And at the time, Christianity was saying that those, you know, some of those souls were going to stay in purgatory or, you, you know, that. Christianity wasn't really giving the answers for the deaths from the war and also all this child mortality. So that was one of the reasons spiritualism like took off with such a fire because there was so much death. Right. And people really wanted the people really wanted to navigate that space in a meaningful way, the the grief and the connection after. So yeah, there's a, a lot of I've met a lot of and read about a lot of grieving mothers who use orb photography to communicate with their deceased children or also use EVP, which is electronic voice phenomena mm-hmm. where they try to like do recordings to have an interaction. Um, it's very common. Um, you meet a lot of grieving parents who find spiritualism for sure It's a huge part of spiritualism. It always has been, and I think it always will be. And you know I, I think a lot of people, I've talked to, you know, or like secular humanists or or skeptic people say, well, they're just doing that because they're delusional because of the grief or they, um, you know, they really want, want to believe that and they have to believe that to get through their life. And, you know, that's fair. But I also wonder about the physical connection between a mother and a child and the whole body knowing thing. You know, I, I've, I've heard and listened to mothers, you know, where they just, for example, there's this one woman. She, she's a good example. Um, she, her name is Madonna Badger, and she had th- her three children and her parents died in a house fire, and wow. she lived.
3: Uh-huh.
1: And she says a, a lot of her talks about the experience are really profound. But one of the things she said is. Um, you know, everybody expected me to kill myself after this experience, but I couldn't be, you know, and at first I thought I might kill myself, but I could not because I knew my children were still out there. I knew that I was still connected to them. And if I killed myself and that ended up putting me in a different spot to where they ended up, I wouldn't even take that chance. And she talks about like being in her grief and the, you know, having basically spiritual experiences with the souls of her children, um you know I mean this whole sensing or knowing that a lot of mothers have with their dead children, you know is it all delusional, or is there some really some profound body knowledge happening? I don't know, you know mm-hmm. I, it hasn't happened to me so I, but um, yeah, I don't know that's I think it's the big part of spiritualism.
0: Going back to the your photography sessions, especially with the ectoplasm, have you? Yeah, I, I see pictures, uh, some of your your images where there appears to be ectoplasmic phenomena. Did you see it when you were taking the picture, or did you, did you fire the picture when you saw it coming, or what was that experience like?
1: Um. So I well, I, what I discovered is I would meet a lot of mediums who said, "Okay, I'm working with ectoplasm, and you can come and photograph it." Now, for the most part this ectoplasm that they were working with was invisible meaning it it was more like a force that acted on their body you know they were using the term ectoplasm to refer to like temperature changes smells hypnotic perceptions like movements of their body
3: mm-hmm.
1: um it was like an energy force like an invisible energy force so with those mediums i just you know did my experimental like you know did long exposure short exposures did, um just tried to see if we could if the process would show a metaphor or like be able to capture something in the experience, but there are very few there are several mediums who when they say ectoplasm, they literally mean ectoplasm like you see in the vintage images
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a whole it's so totally different, and it's very you know you see it objectively with your eyes, everybody's seeing it. You know, you can't flash. Um, it's very low light, but you but you do see it. And for me, the experience is like it was like seeing those vintage images that I had been studying like literally jump to life, mm-hmm. you know, right in front of me. Yeah. And so, th- so that was yeah, that was str- strange. Yeah, but those, like I said, it's very controversial topic, and um, a lot of people in spiritualism. They believe in the rea- they believe in ectoplasm most spiritualists believe in ectoplasm but they still um, are very skeptical about those who are presenting it in the traditional way
0: all right would you consider your camera or your equipment altogether all as a kind of a nexus for some of these events to manifest or is it just is it that and a tool for Making uh, something ineffable visible, or how, what do you consider your equipment as in in this in this equation? Because you you basically are well, part I, of it your your psyche, your personality, all that, and the people you're taking pictures the images of. But what about the equipment?
1: I like to think of a camera in the same way as like a séance room. You know, it's like a dark chamber for capturing you know a presence, basically. And you know, there's this whole you can think of a womb too being being similar where life itself is created I I do definitely like to see like to think about that metaphor of the camera you know being this box for originating and freezing a disembodied presence I'm also making some straightforward documentary images just like trying to doing ethnography showing like what is actually, you know, here's the material culture, here's some of the stuff that's happening, kind of basic, straightforward storytelling images. But then I'm also using it as like my, um, you know, in this, this mediumistic way, I guess, you know, I would say. So, yeah, no, I like to think of the camera as a dance room in and of itself.
0: Yeah. Or it's almost like a, some different kind of planchette or Ouija board or, uh, scrying material or something like that,
1: yeah, photographic scrying i've done I've done a lot of those type of pictures um too, where I'm bringing the camera into like a like a scrying or even sometimes the motion can act as like a scry. How do you mean like when a body moves in space and time and you take a long exposure, it's obviously um, it's an imprint of that motion mm. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you see really transformative things in that imprint.
0: Oh, that you wouldn't have seen if you were just sitting there watching the person move or whatever it was moving. Yeah, yeah. I'm really fascinated by symbols, what symbols do to people, how symbols that are different than even than uh, language and letters affect people. Do you know what a SEMIC writing is?
1: Um, I'm not sure I know what a SEMIC writing is.
0: It is a, I don't know if it's an art movement or what, there's a website called the New Post Literate, which has been around for a few years. Artists create symbols that mean nothing literally. They don't have any meaning where you could say this means this and this means this or it's like a hieroglyph or something like that. It's just symbols and they're making up these symbols and i'm really interested in the way that those symbols affect a viewer like if you come up with a you know there's there's an old idea about uh certain symbols will activate things subconsciously or uh at, at a level that you're not aware but it's just as effective or maybe more effective than if somebody told you about it or you read about it and when you bring the photography right. into mm-hmm. it that that's that's uh, that's very fascinating to me so you find that when you take the pictures, you, you, you kind of get that out of Do other people look at these images and sort of describe to you what's going Because art is, I think, art a lot of times is attempt to con- communicate something that can't be communicated in language. And this sounds like a very specific application of that.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to create images that lend themselves to multiple interpretations, multiple meanings, but also um, really transport you into, so you have your own experience that like, that's part of the, the point of making the images, you you know, trying to have them, you have to decode them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's so you can have your own then type of experience similar to what you have in a seance room, but it's different. It's yeah. not the same as being there, but I'm, I'm trying to really, import that into the project too,
0: yeah. as much as I can Yeah, bl- blur that line a little bit more so mm-hmm. that you know more people that weren't there can say oh yeah I see and they can get maybe a not to uh, get uh, too literal but they get a ghost of a, <laughs> a kind of a ghostly image of what or, or idea of what was going on just by looking at your um, images yeah
1: I hope I hope that's what I I
0: has anybody said that? One of the that? things
1: I'm trying to do. Yeah.
0: Has anybody uh, communicated um, to you that that's what's going? On? Because I've looked at the images on your pages, and I just sit there and stare at them, and I don't even know what's going on, but I I love the images, <laughs> and I'm and they're very compelling.
1: Thank you. I actually, you know, and some people I've learned to take it as a compliment when people say things like, "Oh, I love the project, but I don't want to hang it in my on my walls," <laughs> or um, or or you know, some people are like. So turned off by it or confused by it that they don't want to look at it, like I've learned to take that as a compliment because it's obviously effective, yeah if people are having that kind of reaction,
3: mm-hmm. but
1: it's also you know it's it it was took me a long time to feel that way about that um it's funny because the, the, there was one um I was in an art show and it was actually a show about the occult the occult and art here in new york it was curated uh by pam grossman who's a friend of mine and she's um very into art and the esoteric uh esoteric study and Mm -hmm. so anyway we were going through my images trying to pick a picture for the show and i had one picture in particular i was like oh i think this one is is perfect pam and she was like no it's too real (laughs) and i thought that was so funny because it was a show about the occult
0: and art. What was too real about and it? What was, was the image?
1: It's an image. I think it's on my site. Where it's a woman. She was, she was, dancing. She was trance dancing, and her face is to the side, and it looks like there's a like a, a light mask being built off of her face.
0: Okay, I haven't um, seen that. one. I think one.
1: it might be on my site. Okay. You haven't, or you have? No, I don't think I don't I've know. seen that one. No, um,
0: I think I'd have remembered it.
1: Oh. Uh, I will have to send it to you, and you can post it too if you if you want for people who listen. But she, she literally said no. It's it's too real. It it goes too far. And
0: <laughs> and she couldn't explain to you I why it went was, too far, but she just got that feeling.
1: She got she got the she got the I think she got the creeps from it. Oh, and you know I mean it was just it was too real. Even though she's she's um you know she's a witch. And she does rituals and stuff, and <laughs> it it got it got it was too much, and her and I joke about it too i I talked yeah, but I thought that was really telling, yeah, very like, the aesthetic of the images, like with a lot of red and black or like dark rooms and and these uh monochrome colors it it looks scarier than the actual experience is. you know like a lot of the a lot of these situations are just so calm and the people are saying the most loving things and you know it's just really about healing and it's very peaceful and very relaxing and then I get these images that are just like what is happening (laughs) they're very you know they do have like a horror aesthetic and I understand that and there's no way to get around it because it's just the nature of Shooting in a dark room with the with the type of lighting that I'm in a lot, you know.
0: Yeah, well, maybe you should like publish negative images of it or put in fake colors, yeah, to make them all happy. And <laughs> have you tried I manipulating well, the images I, but, at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of them I put into I've started because everything almost almost always you're under you're in a black room under a red light. Yeah, and. I started to notice like your eyes just get tired looking at that much red and black. And so I started to, (laughs) I figured, you know, it's a monochrome image. Some of them I I put in like a, a cyanotype, which is like a blue and then, or a sepia, which is like a brown. So it's still keeping with photography, like classic photography ways of doing monochrome, but it makes them a little easier to look at. Um, and you can see the detail better, so I've been trying to be very um careful with using the red yeah and only using the red when and D- red is such a like a emotional color you yeah. know, shocking yeah. color.
0: am I correct here? The reason they're using the red is because the because red doesn't affect your um, night vision, you can still see things in the dark even if there's a red light on it. I mean, uh, other things. Yeah, it doesn't, and it does affect your um, uh, di- your your light sensitive sensitivity, which is why they use it in um in uh, astronomy. If you're looking at the sky, everything's lit up red, so that when you look back up, you preserve your night vision.
1: Right, right, and it's also um, I think they started using red light in séance rooms because they were because of the photographic um you know, the plates and having cameras in there, it's like less sensitive. Um, when they were working with some of the photographic materials, How do so you it mean? was like literally like making the sand. Well, they're literally like helping to make the seance room a- act as a dark room, you know? Um, so it's like, it was, it was mimicking a dark room. That's originally, cause in a dark room, in a, in a black and white dark room, you can have a red light on right. and it won't affect the, the materials, uh you know so that the original the first like the eva c like the first ectoplasm seances were under red light until the flash came in oh and i it was see inspired I by see. The, the dark room yeah and there yeah. wasn't there wasn't a specific so this,
0: like there, the reason for it was a photography reason not be not a anything yes. to do, okay yeah yeah
1: yeah but but it does work that way like they do this thing called transfiguration Mm
3: -hmm. where you're in
1: the dark room under the, under the mid, the, under the low red light and the medium will, you know, slightly move and you'll literally see it'll look like they're transforming their bodies, totally transforming. And it's a very trippy, don't let me describe it. It's like a psychedelic drug experience, but you haven't taken drugs. It's just induced with the light.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And, you know, a neuroscientist would say that, that's just happening because your brain wants to make sense of things and it's creating the story, you know, it's jumping ahead and filling in information. So you're having this trippy experience, but a spiritualist will say, no, that's the phenomena and it's happening. And that's more than that. It is, it's happening because the spirits are with us. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a, you know, two ways of looking at the same kind of thing, but, but it does work The the red light, Little dim red light in a dark room really does. It's very trippy.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to go uh, attend a. I've never attended a uh, neither a seance nor a, um, a exhibition of mediumship. I've I've never done that. So this makes me. Uh, oh wow. No, no. I've just been on like a couple of ghost <laughs> hunts because most of my stuff is UFO mm-hmm. stuff, and I'm I'm starting to see that a lot of these things that um, uh, we're talking about here have relevance in the UFO arena and that I don't particularly care about proving something to anybody. All I care about is finding out how does this affect people individually? What is their individual feeling? Because that ultimately is all you're left with now proving to everybody. The government knows that there's aliens here. Unfortunately that, that doesn't interest me anymore uh, really that much. But what's really interesting is what do you think it is when you have an experience? What was your experience of it? How can you describe that to somebody? And maybe, if you're real lucky, how can you induce that in somebody so they say, yes, I see? Because you can't take a picture of that. You can't teach that. You can't write it in a book. And that, I think, there's a really important key in there. And unfortunately, it's got the big-ass subjective um, uh, label (coughs) with it, which is unfortunate, but I'm finding myself not caring so much anymore, at least in in as far as what I'm interested in. I mean, I think people should be you know looking for proof and all this and asking the government and all that that's that that's part of it but my I find myself leaning more towards what we're talking about here which is why I wanted to talk to you you said that you didn't want to come on the show until atwell you said I'm about to go to England to do something and I want to talk about it when I get back on your show would you still like to talk about it
1: sure so um I, I just got back from um, I went to Arthur Finley College which is the only way you can describe it, it's, it's very much like a Hogwarts for adult spiritualists. <laughs> it's like this spiritualist learning center. It's, it's this huge, um, beautiful property um, outside of Stansted Airport. Uh, it's run by the Spiritualist National Union. And they, for the first time in I don't know how many years, definitely in the 17 years I've been paying attention to uh, spiritualist classes and programs. Um, they held a spirit photography course, a five day course. And mm-hmm. so I felt that I needed to go to this course and I needed to see what was happening. I wanted to get the most up to date up to the moment um report on spiritualism and photography, and I felt I would find it there. Um, but what I found, and you know i and part of my project, i I have been documenting and researching mediums who use photography. And um there are a lot of mediums using photography in an interesting way with self-documentation and playing around with the photographic technology. And so I thought maybe I would find a bunch of that there. But no, the course was actually taking it back to 18, <laughs> you know, the 1870s. And they w- were like having us pray for spirit extras and magnetize our cameras and tried to get traditional spirit photography. So that was really surprising to me. So it was moving backwards rather than forwards. It was like going back to the images and trying to make like the authentic early spirit images. So that was really surprising. I really was surprised by that.
0: Uh, were you disappointed or do you think it was interesting? Because when, when you described it to me a little earlier, um, you said that uh, that... It almost sounded like you were disappointed, um, but then I I suggested, don't you think this might be a kind of a tool in your tool belt that you might be able to use, or is it, is it just not that valuable to you?
1: The one thing I was disappointed with was that there was not really an acknowledgement or a conversation about the realities of the photographic technical process. Hmm. You know, there was it was it there it was just completely discounted. But at the same time, I was really excited that to be in a room with people who believed that maybe we would get a spirit extra and to be in a room where we were using cameras in that way. I mean, it's like not, you know, I've never been in that situation where people were working with cameras and genuinely believed something was going to happen. So I started to embrace that aspect of it. Yeah. And... I got really as experimental as I possibly could. And I made, I did make some images that I really like that will be in my book. Uh-huh. Um, but it was, you know, I thought it would be a conversation about the most up to date technology and new techniques and new ways of looking at photography. But instead it was, no, we're going back to the original way that spirit photography was done. And that's what we're aiming at. So yeah, it was, it was a bit of a head trip, really. Oh, so they
0: weren't um, using glass plates and uh, <laughs> and cameras with bellows? No,
1: but they were approaching. But they were approaching it the same way uh-huh. because the whole magnetizing the plates thing, you know. So the teacher was telling us to magnetize our own cameras, our own digital cameras, in the same way that you know photographers took their plates and like prayed on them, and then they would come out with spirit extras. Oh, you know, I mean, not which,
0: with literal magnets, you, but sort of charging them. uh, psychically
3: or charging
1: them which uh, you know which skeptics or people who have tried to debunk spirit photography say well that was part of the way that they passed the plates around and switched the double exposures this photography course was really as if like we were at the exact moment when spirit photography started and we should look at our cameras like anything was possible Mm. really so it was well it was really not what I expected it was uh going to be
0: did anybody else get to, what? What other results did people get? Did you get to see?
1: We were put in situations where it was low light, so you had to make the long exposure, which is what I was talking about. I, I learned to do... or You know, learned to play with,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know. So the, we were being put in those situations, but we weren't really talking about the technical aspect. The teacher actually told us he would decide what was the spirit photograph and what wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like this whole... The whole interpretation thing again, but... Um, but it was really interesting course and I'm really glad I went. And I think a lot of people have really interesting experiences with their camera. So it, it kind of, the whole approach kind of ended up lending itself to the spirit of experimenting with cameras again. Um, so who knows what will happen. I wonder if it'll take off again in in spiritualist communities in that way. Like right now I think orb photography is really the spirit photography of today. Mm -hmm. Um, pretty much. Um, but pe- but there are mediums who are doing really crazy stuff with cameras. Like I just also, when I was in England, I went to go photograph a medium I've I've worked with all, for a number of years, and she was using an Xbox Motion Connect camera. Do you know oh. what this is? It's like th- something that tracks motion. Yeah. And she was she was using the camera, going into trance, getting it to track her 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 body, and then asking the spirits to show themselves in it and then manipulating it like her hand would be still and she would make the image of her body move in different ways.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Meaning like, so her hands on her knee, but then she would have the connect tracker shake hands with somebody in the seance room. Oh, I um, think I see
0: what you're saying. And
1: yeah. she, you know, she was asking the spirits to like manipulate or show themselves in this motion tracker, and it did do weird stuff. It was really trippy. Um, so yeah, that people are there are people who are, and you know, people are doing um, screen grabs of video stills that get corrupted while they're you know filming themselves a video, and then you know, on Skype, when all of a sudden you you'll, you're on Skype and you'll see your face just disintegrate. Yeah. you know those like those glitch things that happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's mediums who like screen grab that. And then use it as a still image to to show their trance state, um, and some of that is really, really profound and interesting. So there there are all these experimental new ways of working with photography and spiritualism happening. Um, but what I found is they're also bringing back the original, <laughs> the original way of doing things.
0: Yeah, it sounds like, from what all you've said here, it sounds like a standardized way of doing things should be more like a standardized way to get individual results. Does that
1: make any sense? Right. Yeah, yeah. So, like, different approaches. I mean, you can work with a lot of different approaches. Yeah.
0: Meaning somebody will use the motion tracking or somebody will take a photograph in a seance room or something like that and you'll get completely different Results, but it will be important for the people that took the picture and maybe some of the people that see it on some level and speak to them on that level. And I really don't know. I don't know how to, how to, uh, what's the word? I don't know how to reconcile that with a uh, subjective, objective view of things. You just can't. It's like, to, it's the same thing. Um, I had somebody try to uh, explain how time is an illusion to me. And you can say that, mm-hmm. and you can say it, and it's glib, and it seems right, and you seem like, well, yeah, I guess that's true. It could be true. But you don't actually know it or feel it. So right. the person who was explaining it to me spent an hour and a half explaining it to me, to me until he saw a look on my face where I went, oh, my God, it is. It is an illusion. Oh, my God. you know, <laughs> it's, it's a construct. It's a useful construct, but it's a filter we put over right. um, to make things work properly for us in the way that we think the world works. And I think the same thing goes on here with with your work and when people are trying to uh, make sense of something that a spiritualist just takes for granted and then somebody sees an image or is experiencing something or whatever and they go, oh, yeah, I see it. But they're not going to describe it the same way the spiritualist did and they're not going to describe it the same way their neighbor did. But that doesn't make it and uh, that doesn't make the experience irrelevant or wrong Mm -hmm. or false. Or whatever, it just makes it you—you right. you can't put it in a jar and weigh it, like I said before.
1: Yeah, and you know, I have to say, well, it's oh, because well, earlier we were talking about too. Like, I—I I do think the spiritualism topic does relate to it. I'm starting to see how much it does relate to the UFO um, thing. Uh, and one of the ways, please is, go too, on. That a lot of mediums. <laughs> a, well, a lot of mediums. Most mediums have had UFO experiences. Yes, many of the ones I know, many of the ones I've met. Mm-hmm.
3: Um,
1: you know, Whitley Stryber, Strieber, Strieber, Strieber. Sorry, I, I, don't, I don't want to say it wrong, but um, uh,
0: most people say you Strieber. Know, I about, think. You know, I think he even says Strieber.
1: Strieber, yeah, Strieber. Um, he talks about you know his wife Anne and how initially she said, "Oh, this has to do with death." Like she saw the whole abduction thing is having to do with death or people on abduction experiences see dead people too or right. you know now he's communicating with Anne mm-hmm. and you know there's a there's crossover there and he's very much talking about it right and um, I do think it relates I I do because I, and why I mention it is that you know I was asked to speak at a UFO conference hmm. and most of the most of the people said they weren't interested in what I was going to talk about but the ones who stayed then did find it interesting but just the term spiritualism turned them off they were like uh eh, we we don't want to hear it. we're not interested in this this has nothing to do with what we're interested in but the people who did stay and listen to me did end up relating and finding it interesting yeah so i i do i do think maybe the crossover the parallels is something that's not i don't know maybe that isn't talked about a ton.
0: No, it's know. really not talked about at all. In fact, it's one of those things. It's funny. It's There's this, um, this separation between people who are kind of new agey and, and hippie-ish and all that. And then there's people that are, you know, science is, we have to keep this very scientific mm-hmm. and analytical because that's the only way we're going to figure it out. And the two sides don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a problem. If you could get the two sides to be combined into one sort of study, that would be, and I don't even know how to do that, but right. I, th- I think that somebody that understands and accepts the science as well as understands and accepts the subjective part of it, I guess you want to call it, if you could combine yeah. those two into some sort of, uh some sort of philosophy of, of research, that might get somewhere. The only problem is it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to everybody. <laughs> it would only make sense to uh, right. people that are interested or had had the experience. We've been taught, at least in this country, to uh, say that uh, the scientific method is the be all and end all and the only thing that works. And it works great. It's worked great for a few hundred years and it, it gets us to the moon. And we're talking because on, you know, on Skype here because of science and all that. But. Um, When you're talking about something as weird, subjective, and um, uh, what's the word, ephemeral as a medium or a UFO conference, right, (laughs) a UFO sighting or uh, an encounter with something, you know, a fairy encounter or Bigfoot or anything like that, I think that 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 dichotomy breaks down. And it kind of has to break down. And I don't know what the answer is to that, but talking to people like you is kind of a – to me is a step in that direction and is an important step in that direction. Um, And I hope that uh, a lot of the stuff I said here – because when we were um, talking at first, you said I've been on some shows and they don't seem to um, understand exactly what I'm talking about. They'll only ask me certain questions but not other ones. And I hope – we've covered the kind of questions that you wanted to be you know, wanted to talk about and want to have asked and what you wanted to discuss rather than p- putting things in little boxes
1: oh absolutely yes this is no I, I was very excited to to have this conversation with you and all the conversations we've had have been really exciting for me and i guess one thing i can maybe relate to the ufo thing is that it took me a long time to realize what spiritualist messages, how they actually worked. But like I think many people, you know, they want to go into a room where a medium is and, and get proof that prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there's life after death. And it's much more subtle and strange the way they work. I mean, you know, sometimes you could be at a message service and hear somebody say something completely vague to another person.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But then if you actually talk to that person, they end up explaining why that vague statement was actually incredibly profound and exact and something they needed to hear. Yes. Or there's been, there's been times where I have a reading and it makes no sense. And then literally three years later, everything that was said to me um, makes complete sense and is actually true. When it's like up to that point, it was completely meaningless and nothing. Yes. or the way it kind of creeps in subtly or plays off of something else in your life like it doesn't it works in a it's not the way that it is in the movies it really isn't it's it's a no much it isn't more you, you subtle, can't show that um complicated um process
0: yeah i and go that's ahead.
1: something you know like yeah people want to go to a medium and like hear exactly what they want to hear and be, get proof. And if they don't, they dismiss the entire thing. And I, that's, I think part of the problem. And it's also to how it affects um, people. Yeah. Mm. So I, it, it's, it's much more complicated and subtle, like I said. Yeah. So. Um,
0: yeah. And it's not amenable to s- it, sitting here and saying it in language in, in a, in a sentence or two or even 10 sentences. Right. Yes. I was miffed because I interrupted you again and I forgot exactly what I was going to say. However, one of the last things I had on here as a question was <laughs> and this just came off the top of my head not even reading what uh, uh you know after I would read all your stuff, is it time to retire the phrase believe in? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's the, the the phrase, you know, I well Jeffrey Kripal says it a lot, right? Both and, you know. hmm Yeah. That's I think I think that's more of where we should go.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um I think people get so uh obsessed with an answer that they realize that and I've I've said this before, if you if you've got this idea that you need an answer, you're gonna look for an answer. And your all of your effort right. is going to be directed towards that answer, and there's about five thousand other answers sitting around you that you completely ignored, which probably were better, or would make more sense to you that you've ignored because you're saying I'm going to find this answer, or somebody saying right. Do you do you and believe then, in this? It's like, well, I don't I don't like you asking me that question because you're 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 putting me in a box. I don't want to be put in.
1: Exactly, and I think well, you and I both agreed on in our earlier conversation that anybody who offers you answers, <laughs> you should run from yeah. You should. <laughs> you don't want the people who have the definitive answers to these things. Like that's, um, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's usually the wrong way to go.
0: Yeah, well, and people think that when we talk about these things, like, oh, well, now you've entered mm. into this moral area where everything's true and you know everything's permitted it's like no we've entered into an area where adults can talk about thing about ideas freely we're not saying we believe mm-hmm. it or it should be this way or whatever i mean i don't think you should murder people or steal from them or treat them badly or whatever Th- that's an absolute to me but talking about the paranormal i don't think there's I, I don't think there should be a rule except for what you know what is moving towards more understanding or more interest or something like that or even more more importantly some kind of peace that somebody's had with when they've had you know move somebody towards some kind of peace when they've had some kind of weird experience where you can say this is it's not normal that you've had this experience but it's it's also not unheard of at all there's nothing wrong with you there's you know and you can describe it to me any way you want and that's fine and i notice that too you know i've said this on the show i'll be at a conference and somebody'll come up to me and they'll just they'll just say um, can I tell you what happened to me? And I go, yeah, okay. And mm-hmm. 75% of the time or more, they say thank you and walk away after they have finished with it. They just wanted to get it out of their mouth to somebody that isn't filtering, telling them they were wrong, whatever it was. I hear some of the most insane things, but I'm not going to tell the mm-hmm. person they didn't see that. I mean, and they're, they're perfectly okay with it. They're not raving and with their hair wild and about to be put in a mental institution, they just want some peace with this weird thing that happened to them. And right, uh, and I, that's all you can yeah. do sometimes. Anyway, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, no, but I, I think also too, if you're heavily involved in the study or, or thinking about these topics, I really feel there's danger if you don't stay in a state of constant questioning. Yes. And it's so easy to get stuck on. Look, like You have to keep, swimming (laughs) I I really yeah and I'm gonna mess up the quote but it's like a very 14 kind of approach to even question your own you know your own perceptions and and thoughts and ways of even thinking about it constantly um or or else I I really think there's danger of losing the horizon if you don't stay moving with the angles you look at it if if that makes
0: sense you know yeah Certainty is a pathology. You stand, in,
1: stand in one place. Yeah, if you stand in one place too long, I think it's easy to get lost.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you you say this is what it is in within about ten minutes, fifty people have very specific and good arguments why you're wrong, and mm-hmm. they'll be they'll be correct. So this thing, it's not it's this area is I don't think is made to. I think it's designed to have uncertainty in it because that is a very integral part of life. I said earlier, I was listening to the interview I did with George Hansen, which I haven't posted yet. And somehow while we were talking, I came up with the phrase and I just posted it on the running Mysterioso site. I'm trying to explain the paranormal is like trying to explain a joke. <laughs> once you, yeah, yeah. once you explain the joke, it's, you can't because it, it devalues the, the, the humor inherent in that leap of whatever, you know, the leap of ridiculousness that you, that you realize when you hear a joke. And I don't think there's a one to one relationship with the paranormal, but I, I, it, you know, I think you know what I'm getting at. At least I hope you do.
1: Yeah. Definitely.
0: So definitely. to have the joke remain interesting, funny, and, uh, and to develop it along, you know, don't keep telling the same joke over and over. You have to you have to be open to changing your viewpoint about things. And um, mm-hmm. the, the the best people I know are always subtly changing their viewpoints in, in various ways and telling you exactly why they have so you can see how they came to that conclusion. And it's so weird to talk about art on a show that's supposed to be about UFOs, but I thought it was really important to do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, thank you for... Um entertaining the conversation i really um yeah no i think i wish there was more crossover like this yeah and i i I don't know how to encourage more of it other than um personally but I, i do think there's more interesting conversations to be had if we could get more art talk into these
0: topics yeah and it's not going to interest a whole hell of a lot of people because it seems like a technical technological scientific thing. But if you look at the history of it, it's a vast majority of it has to do with subjective experience, which is a scary thing if you're trying to measure it. Um, So, you know, what's the problem now? How do you measure subjective experience? I've been going through this with people on this show for a while. And um, I I thank you for going through with it in a, in a, in a different direction Mm -hmm. And I think we should continue this conversation, especially after your book comes out. um, Why don't you, uh, could you tell people where to go look? And actually, I guess um, you're still trying to get um, enough. uh, It's not an Indiegogo, but crowdfunding to get the book released.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's right now it's in that mode. But um, if people are interested in my work, I would. um, My website is and I think I'm going to have a big announcement about the book coming up shortly so
3: okay um
1: i have a mailing list or my email is uh shannon at shannon dot com or you can place an order there's lots of links for my website so it would just be shannon and i will keep people who email me or sign up updated on everything um i'm really excited about finally getting this book out into the world
0: Yeah, I I can't wait to see it. I think it'll be one of those texts that people that need to read it. uh, I I want to I want to make them aware of it by, you know, things like this, doing the show and letting people know, look, I think this is really relevant to what we talk about on this show. And that uh, um, we'll really realize the implications of that after the book comes out. And we have more conversations about this and about these connections. Thank you so much, Shannon
1: thank you i look forward to talking to you uh, again every time i've talked with you i've really enjoyed it yes Thanks.
0: same here you're the guest you get to pick the outro music which you prob- oh you've heard the show before so you know that i hope you had something pre- prepared if you didn't i will uh, oh
1: god i know i'm i just um
0: i'll let it I i'll let it out the this. space
1: oh, boy. <laughs> you okay
0: how about don't, don't feel under pressure. Just, you know, you can tell, you can tell me in 10 minutes if you like.
1: <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, i just pick anything. Oh gosh. Okay.
0: Anything you, what, what um, what is your favorite piece of music that you would like to have lead out this, uh, this conversation? Um, how
1: about something by the yardbirds?
0: Ah, I like the Yardbirds too. Uh, yeah. Well, I can only think of the normal things like For Your Love and Train Kept a Rollin' and things like that.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. Either of those would work for me. Oh, okay. I guess it's not paranormal, but I I, I do think it's be completely, especially Jimmy Page. So.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Here's a good studio version. Thank you so much, Shannon. I'll talk to you again soon. This is one of those uh, conversations that I really look forward to on this show and... We'll have some more when the book comes out, or maybe even before.
1: Yes. Thank you. I really Uh look forward to it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
2: I will excite. I'll make you dream on me at night.